This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Pete Payne, pastor at Grace Church. I apologize in advance. We're going to do a bit of an extended introduction because we're coming to a one of the key turning points in the book today and we need to do some review so especially for those of you that haven't been here uh, Ecclesiastes is the preacher uh, that's his name uh, he calls himself Koholeth Koheleth in in uh, Hebrew and he was a king that lived in Jerusalem in all probability he was Solomon but we don't know that for sure he was a very wise man and he lived a life where he was a philosopher. Basically, what we're reading is his study of the world, of people, of himself. And if you think of this book as a man just making a circle around, watching, watching, stopping, making observations, he'll say things like, again I saw, again I saw, and he'll keep coming back to the same themes over and over and over again. So but he's, he's a deep thinker, he's searching things out, he's going deep, he's a broad thinker, he's looking across the... Uh, all of the, the landscape, and he uh, is somebody that we would do well to pay attention to. He's a very wise man, and um, his mo- model here, his mode, is experimentation. He experiments with himself and observation. He's a scientist in some regard. He's a scientist philosopher, and we have the benefit, now probably 3,000 years later, of getting to read these writings, these musings of someone who was a very wise man and had incredible opportunities to do this kind of study. So Craig asked you all to put your swimmies on last week because we're going to be in the deep end of the pool. And I want to ask you to keep them on at least for a while today because I want you to think with me as we are engaging now with a brilliant mind. We're engaging with probably Solomon, probably the wisest man other than Jesus Christ who ever walked the planet. And we need to be thinking clearly as we engage with him so that we can determine and be allowed to see what it is that he's saying to us. And I want to look back at chapter 1 just for a second. He brings us two basic perspectives with regard to God himself. The first one we find in in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It's an unhappy or translated, it's an evil, it's a sad, it's a bad business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun and behold, all is, and this word means vapor, it's a mist. It's something that just goes away. It's a striving after wind. So that's perspective one. Notice that God is included as somebody who has given an evil business, a bad business, a sad business to man. So that's a theistic perspective. There's a God included in his worldview. Then a couple verses later, he gives us a different perspective. He's walking and now he's examining himself. And look in verse 16, he says this of chapter one. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. There's no reference to God. And as he goes through the book, as he's circling around this thing that we call life, 
under the sun, he talks about. He'll, you'll hear both of those perspectives. Sometimes there's no reference to God. Sometimes there is. He doesn't use the Hebrew personal name for God, Yahweh, in this book. He uses a more generic term for just God. God either is or God is not. And at different times, as we go through the rest of this book, you're going to hear him coming from different perspectives. He's representing the two basic philosophies of life. Either there is a God or there is not a God. Atheism would be a philosophy that says there's no God. And you can either believe that because you say, I don't believe that there's a God, or you can believe that even though you might say there's a God, but you act like somebody who doesn't live like there's a God. Both of those would be atheistic positions. Ah, theism, no God. Existentialism is really where he starts in that second section. He's a, he, he finds himself, he's looking around, and he says, I can figure this out. That's an existential position. It's an atheistic position. Rationalism, hedonism, humanism, relativism, nihilism, all of these isms, things that have, the philosophers have been discussing for 3,000 years in various forms are all found in this book. Actually, they're all found in the first chapter of this book, verses 16 to 23. Read through that, and you're going to see the seeds of every philosophical system that man has invented in this book, written 3,000 years ago. Very important, extremely wise man. Philosophers are often considered the kind of the cream of the crop intellectually. I don't know whether that's true from God's perspective, but here's a philosopher that before any of these, anybody had thought these things, he's thinking these things. So let's engage with him. And then, of course, theism is a belief that God exists. Now, God may be a he, a she, an it, a what, what is he, but there's something, someone outside of this existence that we can see who has some doings with us. Now, it may be that he was the God of Thomas Jefferson, a deist, and he, he just was the clockwork. He created the universe, and then he backed away to watch it, and he has no further dealings with it. That would be a God, some kind of a God. Or it may be that he's just a God who is a micromanager. He's looking over every single detail. He's determined everything, and we are just robots. Maybe that's who God is. He doesn't say. He doesn't call this God by name. This is just God that he's looking at. And at certain times, as I said, as he's walking around the earth, as he's observing himself, as he's observing nature, as he's observing the interactions of other people in various situations, sometimes he refers to God, sometimes he's not. He's back and forth between these two. He begins with his own heart. I searched my heart. And he ends that search in futility. And so he begins then to say, well, maybe God has given this ugly, horrible, bad, unhappy business to men. That's all vanity and vapor. So over the course of the book, back and forth. I want you to look at some key phrases in the first three chapters. The first one that we've already read, it's an unhappy or an evil business that God has given to the children of men. So he references God in chapter 1. In chapter 2, verses 24, he says this, There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. So again, he references God there. Apart from him, who can eat or drink or have enjoyment? So as a philosopher, he's now a theistic philosopher. The one who pleases God, so it's possible to please him, he's thinking. God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Now, this is coming from his observation. How does he know this? Chapter 3. 
I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that man can't dis- can- cannot perceive what's been done from the beginning to the end. So basically right there he's saying, from what I've seen, God's put something of these questions about what is r- real, what's it all about, what's the point, into our hearts, but he's not given us an ability to figure it out. So at some point in his journey around his world, he's come to that conclusion. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. So he's watched people come and go and the earth remains and the heavens remain and whoever else is out there, he thinks, remains. We need to look at the reality that the preacher is presenting to us embedded in the universe as he's perceiving it. Now, again, engage with this. This is a wise man with all kinds of opportunity that none of us will have to experiment, do different things. And he says, there's meaning out there. There's a question. I see vanity and vapor and wind hurting everywhere I look. But as I continue to look at the human condition, some things seem to be better than others. And that's the key word for today. All of a sudden, he's going to start to talk about things being better than other things. He sees vapor. He sees evil. He sees oppression in places where it shouldn't be, in the courts, in the religious institutions. But linking words like justice and injustice, wickedness and righteousness, wisdom and foolishness, putting those two words together implies that there's some system out there. Something is better than another. We're, We're contrasting things. We're no longer in a universe where nothing matters where nothing is of account, where it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. He's, he's grown beyond that. He's seeing things. In other words, he's saying that while things are very bad, it's an evil business, some things are badder than others. Basically, that's what he's saying to us. Now look at some other verses. As you're gonna, you start to see this theme of things being better, in chapter 2, verse 24, he says this, There is nothing better for a person that he, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So he's examining life under the sun and he's saying, wait, there's nothing better than this. This is as good as it gets, at least on this lap around life. And then chapter 3, I perceive that there's nothing better for man to be than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. So wait, there's more. There's better than that. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is a gift of God to man. So he's observing, he's watching, he's growing, he's thinking, he's asking questions. Chapter 3, verse 19. Okay, but what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. They all die. The problem of death has confounded me. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up above the sun and the spirit of the beasts goes down. Who, who knows? So... I saw that there's nothing better, nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Another question. Who can bring him to see all that will come after him? Who knows? Who can bring him to see? So, if these statements are true, now keep your swimmies on for one more minute here and then we can go back to the shallow end of the pool, maybe somewhat more shallow. If these statements are true, then there is meaning in the universe. If some things are better than others, then there's a value system that either 
God, Mother Nature, some committee, the Big Bang, somebody put some meaning into the universe. Because otherwise the words evil and good have no meaning. Otherwise the words better is, in, is irrelevant. It's foolishness. There's nothing better than another thing. If there's no meaning in the universe, if there are, is no value system, so everybody lives this way. There's not a person on the planet, no matter what he says, there's no person that lives in such a way that he says everything doesn't matter. Nothing matters at all. Everything's equally valuable. Nobody lives that way. They may say that they do. Even the person who's an atheist, who's a nihilist, who says there's no meaning in the universe at all and kills himself, is saying by his actions, death is better than life. I choose death over life. So if these words better, if as he's observing things and he's finding under the sun some things to be better than others, all of a sudden, this meaningless, shapeless existence that we have starts to take shape. And that's what we need to be examining. What is the shape? What's the point of all of this? So you can take your swimmies off and let's pray and ask the Lord to, to help us with we, as we look at Ecclesiastes 4. Father, we come to you alone. We confess this morning that you alone have the words of eternal life. There is no other word out there that is true. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. So Lord, we ask you to open our eyes to see what the preacher is saying, to see why you put this in your word, why we need to study this, why it's important that Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is critical to our life and to our being. Help us, Lord, to understand and to see with the eyes that you give us. And Lord, we ask that every other thing that is not of you would just fall to the ground. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Ecclesiastes 4. Craig actually uh, concluded his message last week with the first three verses, but I'm going to read them again just because of the context. We'll look at this whole chapter, 16 verses. Ecclesiastes 4. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and does not, has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, and yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? 
And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. How many of you have ever been to Sears and you walk into the store and they've got three products? They have good, better, and best. Now, we don't know what that really means. Usually it means this one's the most expensive. We don't know whether it means that it's better, although probably most of the time it is. So it depends on your value system. If you're thinking corporately, you're thinking this one's the best because we sell it at the highest price. Or you may be thinking this one's good enough. I've bought tires. I've gone to discount tire and they have the same set of lineups, good, better, and best. And if I go and buy this kind of tire, it will probably last until I hit the first whatever was not supposed to be in the road. And if I buy the medium kind of tire, spend a little bit more. And then if I buy Michelin tires, they will last probably as long as they say they're going to last. Good, better, and best. So here's what the preacher's beginning to do. As he's made multiple laps, he's examined himself. He's tried wine and women and song. And now he's looking. He's looked at the creation saying, boy, everything seems to be the same. It goes, the sun comes, the sun goes down, it comes up again. The seasons come and go. Men die. My dad died. People have... And, and yet, everything stays the same. God seems to be there if He's there. All of these things are the same. He's looked at the, the courts. He's looked at religious institutions. He's examining. As, as he's going around, he's come to a place in his searching that some things appear to be better than others. And you heard that word repeated numbers of times. So I think what he wants to teach us today is this. He is seeking to convince us that there is a better way to live under the sun. That the word better has some meaning and that that's significant. So three things. There's a better way to work under the sun in this passage. There's a better way to lead. And hence, there's a better way to follow under the sun. And there's a better way to relate under the sun. So we're going to look at those three things and then try to draw some application from those. The first one is there's a better way to work under the sun. And that's verses 4 through 8. So let's read those again. Then I saw, so making a stop on his journey, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all of his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now, is this hyperbole? Is it true? Under the sun, all of a man's work, toil, all of his skill comes from envy of his neighbor? I think we could challenge that. But would we be right? 
What have 3,000 years of human history proven with regard to this point? Why do people do the things they do under the sun? If we take away all incentive, you get paid the same as anybody else no matter how hard you work, you eat the same things as everybody else no matter how hard you work, there's only one kind of car, and that's the only kind of car you can drive. There's only, it doesn't matter whether you've gone to school, not gone to school, anything else, nothing matters. Everybody gets treated exactly the same. How many people would be willing to go to medical school? How many people would be willing to go and work difficult jobs? How many people would be willing to be professional athletes if nobody watched them and their salaries were the same as everybody else on the planet and they still had to do all the work to be a professional athlete? think human history, 3,000 years of human history has proven, uh, as you look at, for example, early colonial America, people came to Jamestown, they, the colonists came. Initially, everybody is treated the same, then they realize this is not working. If people don't work, we're going to hang them. That worked okay. People started working. But then they decided there might be a better way. Let's let people have and build plantations and give them land and let them grow. And if they work harder, then they get to own their land. And so that seemed to work better. There seemed to be a better way to do things, but it had to do with envy. And I want to be ahead, move ahead of the Joneses or whatever the the person may be who's living next door. What about communism? Same thing. It's a system that failed. It was based on, let's treat everyone alike. Everyone's going to pull their weight. And so nobody pulls any weight, ultimately. And the system crashes because there's no incentive. All of a man's toil and skill and work come from his envy of his neighbor under the sun. This is the observation of a very wise man. I think it's been proven true. The other thing I want you to see in this section is just this beautiful analogy of the hands. We have three, three things here. We have bad, we have evil, bad, and better just right in front of us. Two hands folded together, epitomizing laziness. He says, the fool, so there's an absolute statement, the fool folds his hands, basically doing nothing, and consumes ultimately his own flesh because he gets nothing. So that's what happens in the world. If I, if I watch and I see a lazy person who does nothing, ultimately ends with nothing, in poverty. Then at the other extreme, there's a guy that's got two fists full of work. He's striving. He does nothing. He never rests. He puts his nose to the grindstone. He's striving. That's kind of like the picture of the man that was presented here who doesn't have a son or a brother, but he keeps working and he never asks any deeper questions. He just keeps plugging away, keeps going to work every day, and he never says, why am I doing this? Is this the best way? Is it a better way? Is this the good way? He just keeps moving. And then the third is one who has one handful of quietness, And, by implication, one hand of work. He has found a balance that seems to be worked into the universe. God rested on the seventh day. Remember the Sabbath, six days shall you labor. And on the seventh, he seems to have found a balance. So, this writer says, it's better. Not only do we have it in the written word, it's better. But my observation would be that the people that do it that way seem to be not evil, not bad, but better. They're better. It's better. We need to ask questions. We need to follow the example of the preacher who's walking around life and he's saying, is this good? Is this bad? 
Is this better? What's the point? How do I work? How should I work? We need to be aware that there are people out there who are our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and our relatives who either are asking the wrong questions. How can I get ahead? How can I get rich? How can I have that kind of car? Or they're not asking questions at all. They're just in the trench, in the pit, day after day, not asking, why am I doing this? What's the point? That's his point. There's a better way to live under the sun. Secondly, there's a better way to lead under the sun. We're going to skip down to verse 13 and come back to the other verses. He says this, again, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, assuming that's talking about the youth, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Hmm. Now this is a difficult passage according to the people who know all the nuances of the language. It's hard to tell whether there's one or two or, th- or two or three people in this, whether there's a king and then a, a slave who arises to be king and then another youth that follows or whether he's just talking about two people. But that really isn't significant to the point here. The point is this, that wisdom and walking in wisdom is better than this old foolish king. That's the point that he's making. There's a better way to lead under the sun. We all love the rags to riches story. How many of you like watching Rocky Four? and he goes and beats the Russian even though all the odds are against him and all of those things. How many of you have never seen Rocky Four? That's okay. Probably, I wouldn't even recommend that you spend your time on it. But what about Miracle on Ice or Seabiscuit? These stories of thing, people that go from impossible situations to win. We love those things. We love it when that happens. And wow, it's just great. This is the same story. And yet what he's saying here is that foolish arrogance will undermine leadership. Foolish arrogance. Note that he says he no longer knew how to take advice. Not only was he not taking advice, he had lost the ability to take advice. So there's a word here to the old people in the room. Anybody over the age of 30, I'm classifying you today as old, along with the really old, which is me. Okay, Here's a word from a wise man. There's an old and foolish king. So he had risen to a position, he had been given a position, and yet he no longer knew how to take advice. In the previous section, foolishness was identified with folding hands and laziness. The fool folds his hands, does nothing. So that's a fool. In this, the fool is identified as someone who should know better, and yet no longer knows how to take advice. He's no longer humble. He's no longer searching. He's no longer asking questions. He's no longer learning from everybody around him. He's no longer doing what this preacher is doing, continuing to ask, continuing to circle. And so he's become a foolish old king. And a young, poor youth is going to take his place and rise up. Because it's better, it's better to be young and open and humble and listening and all the things that appear to be happening with this one than it is to be in a position and yet have lost the ability to learn. So for all of us old guys and old girls, don't lose your ability. Pursue it. 
Pursue humility. Pursue asking questions. Keep asking. Never stop. Set a great example for the people coming after. Wow. They, they're, when I get together with them, I should be learning from them, and yet they're always asking. What have I learned? What do I know? Be that kind of a, an old guy or an old girl. Finally, in this section, I want you to note that wise leadership and a large following is not ultimately satisfying. Even though he says it's better to be this young and wise youth who even though he started in poverty became the king than it is to be the old foolish king. At the end, even when the youth becomes king and all the people are following him, he looks and he goes, oh yeah, he's going to die and nobody's going to remember him. Or if they do, it'll probably be a negative memory. They'll rewrite the history books. What is the point? Wisdom's better than foolishness, but is wisdom the end? What's the point of all of this? And then the third point, I'm going to go back and read verses 7 and 8 again, but then on to 9 through 12. There's a better way to relate under the sun. So, we had a better way to work under the sun. We had a better way to lead and follow under the sun. And now there's a better way to relate under the sun. Verse 7. Again I saw, in one of his stops around the circle, vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Listen, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So even in this under-the-sun world that he's watching, that he's paying attention to, it, it is evident from his observation, and I think we would all bear witness to the exact same thing, that being alone just has disadvantages. It is better to have people with you, teammates, fellowship. I remember one of the camping trips we went on early on when my kids were little and they were too little to help me set up the tent. And I just, I'll, rem- I'll never forget trying to set the poles up at this end of the tent and try to defy gravity for just a few seconds while I ran down to the other end of the tent And they just kept falling. And I could have been there all day and my poor wife finally had to be the one to hold the pole down here so that I could do it. Two were better than one. You've all had those experiences. Or you've had a big party, your whole community group has been over, hundreds of people from the neighborhood have come to your house at our block party and now they're all gone. It was a great time and you walk into the kitchen and the the sink is just overflowing with dishes. And you, loving husband that you are, have sent your wife out to just enjoy life in the backyard. Right, guys? And then you said, this is an evil business that God has given (laughs) to men. And you open the dishwasher and it's full of dirty dishes. Not just clean dishes, dirty dishes. This is horrible. How much better, four hours later after you've gotten the dishes all washed, how much better just to bring the group in and do it together. The whole idea, many hands make light work and all that. The fellowship, it's just better. We would all agree with him on this. 
If you don't agree with him on this, I would, I would ask you to consider why is it? Who is it that you are believing that one is better than two and that one is better than three? We have a multiplied reward for our toil. We have help during crises. And I will never forget the day that Brian Ruiz had his stroke not too long ago. And really, by the time he got to the hospital, there were already people from his community group there. And within minutes of that crisis happening, of him falling, there were people in his old community group and church, people that he had built relationally with in El Paso who were getting in their cars and driving the 12 hours here, flying here. And he was surrounded by people in his community group, people from this church and relationships that he had built. He was a blessed man, but he was a blessed man because he believed this. He had people to hold him up and hold his family's arms up. He lived his living his life and has lived his life in a way that reflects it's better. Two are better than one. And he's paid a lot of price. It's cost him to build relationally that way. But when he fell, there were people around him. We have help during crisis. We have warmth. Marriage may be in view here. This is a, this is a favorite verse that's often used in weddings. Two and three, God's the third. And we do things like that. And that may well be in, be in view here, but it's probably a broader application. It's probably things like you're going across the desert in the Middle East there where, the, where Solomon was writing, where the, where the preacher was writing. And if you're by yourself and it gets very cold at night and you've got just the one cloak, do you put it under you? Do you put it over you? All you Boy Scouts know the answer to that one. But if you've got two people, you've got one cloak to put under to keep you from the, ground, from the cold of the ground and one to put above you. And you've got two bodies together. You can keep warm and survive in places with the same temperature that one alone could not have survived. That's really what he's talking about. That broad application, two are better than one. Battle, protection. If you're alone, you can face the enemy, but what if somebody comes at your back? If you've got somebody watching your back, and then you're protected, and a triply stranded cord is not easily broken. So that may be talking about a variety of things. It doesn't really explain it. There may be applications there, but he's just making observation. Boy, two's better and... And three is probably even better than that in certain situations. It would appear from his observations, he may be right, he may be wrong. We don't know. But I think our, our experience would bear this out. It would appear that two people together, fellowship, three, is better than being alone. Go back and look at verse one again. I saw the oppressed and their tears and there was no one to comfort them. And I saw the oppressor and on their side was power and there was no one to comfort them. Strange verse. You think about somebody like Adolf Hitler in that last moment before he killed himself. Who was there to comfort him? I saw the oppressed. I saw the oppressors. In verses 7 and 8, I saw this one who worked day and night and he had no other one. He had no one. The literal meaning there is he had no second. There was no one with him. And yet he kept working and he never asked, why am I doing this? Who am I storing this up for? He never asked the questions that the preacher would encourage us to ask. Let's live an examined life. There's a better way to relate under the sun. So what do we do with all of this? We can try... Ah, theism, 
We can try living without God. Many people do. Many people in our area would say, I believe in God. And yet as we examine their lives, it would look very similar, and hopefully not us, but I think we always need to be asking the question. It would look very similar to what he's observing under the sun. So even though they may not claim to be uh, theist, atheist, their lives may reflect that. Or we can live in a theistic world where there's a God, some kind of God, with some kind of power who has at least something to say. When I was in Virginia Beach years ago, I worked at a, at a psychiatric hospital. We had a Christian unit on that hospital, and we were talking with some folks about 12-step groups, and they were running 12-step groups where one of the concepts there is a higher power. There's somebody outside of yourself, and yet somehow inexplicably to me, they would choose their own higher power. And I remember talking to this one guy who said, that doorknob is my higher power. And I said, really? Well, what does it do? That, when I th- think about this, it just helps me not to do drugs. I, I'm, there's something about this. So he was living in a universe where he believed that was, there was something outside of him, some power outside of him. And so he had some hope that he was going to be able to get away from that, from, from his problem. He saw that not drinking was better than drinking. So he believed that there was some form to the universe, but he was trying to define it. I said, well, you know, we believe that there is a higher power, one higher power. And so this group that we're going to do, we're going to talk about who he is and what he says. And we would like to try to help you with this, but we we want to try to help you with who your higher power is and whether you get to choose him or whether he gets to choose you. So with theism, there seems to be at least the possibility that meaning and purpose exist, that there's an answer to the question, what's the point? And with that purpose, there's the possibility then of living in such a way that the things that I do here and now, under the sun, in this brief vapor of an existence that I have, actually matter. And that ultimately is the point. Is there a better way to live under the sun? I believe the preacher would say, yes, there is. Let's keep looking. And here's our question this morning. Are we content to live with vague possibilities that there's a better way to live? To think that there's a God out there that if we do this and that, and if we live with wisdom instead of foolishness, if we live working and resting and all these kinds of things, and we just order our world aright, and He's going to bless us if we do the right things and curse us if we do the wrong things, and He's going to set the day of our birth and the day of our death, and that there's going to be good and evil and justice and injustice and all these things. Are we content to live as the preacher is living, walking around and around and making further observations, deeper observations, asking questions. It's good. It's much better than the folded hands life or the striving but never asking questions life. It's better than that. But is it the best? Is there really the best way to live? And I would submit that this God who has put eternity in our hearts and into this just amazing book has woven, and into all of us were just woven these little glimmers of gold. There's something not only better, there's something better coming. There's something best. It's 900 years after the preacher wrote, there was a baby born in Bethlehem, not too far from where he lived, just a few miles away. And this baby was actually a royal descendant of the preacher. But he was also God himself. He was... Emmanuel, God with us. He'd come 
to explain God. He'd come to answer their questions. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the animal goes down. Who knows? He came to say, I know. I've come to show you God, the Father, the Creator. I've come to tell you that when you've seen me, you've seen God. I've come to tell you that someone greater than the preacher has come to be among you. There's a best way to live. He was named Jesus because angels came from above the sun and they spoke to his parents and said, call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He came not to just live the better way that the preacher was discovering, but to live an absolutely perfect, spotless, best life, exactly as it should have been. Perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, perfect balance of work and rest and leadership characterized by humility and kindness and servanthood and submission And most important of all, he came to live this perfect relationship with his father. I only do the things I see my father doing. My father is going to glorify me and I'm going to glorify him and I'm going to finish the work. And he lived in this perfect relationship that he now calls us to be involved with with him. Someone greater than the preacher has come and we will never have the opportunities that the preacher had to do all this experimenting and to live a life where we just get to do whatever we want whenever we want to do it and we don't want to do that because at the end of all of that he says this was a waste of time it's vain it's vanity keeping up with the joneses is vain becoming the guy that went from rags to riches in the end it's all vain is there something Better than better. Yes. There's the best. Now listen, this one Jesus, He claims to have all authority in heaven and on earth. Listen to that. On hev- in heaven, above the sun, and on earth, under the sun. He claims to take the, these enigmatic, mysterious teachings of the preacher and make them clear. Here's what He says. There is a God. He's the Father of all creation. As God, He gives purpose and meaning to everything that He creates. Everything that He's done matters. Everything that His creatures do matter. As God, though, it's His privilege to define both the meaning and the purpose. To decide what's evil and what's good. What's bad and what's better and what's best. It's His prerogative to demand obedience, perfect obedience from every one of His creatures. And that's what He's done. Jesus made this abundantly clear. Now, hear this. Jesus came and in His inaugural address in the Gospel of Matt, according to Matthew, He says this, unless your righteousness surpasses every most religious person, the Pharisees that you've found, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And going further in that same sermon, you must be perfect. In other words, you have to live a life exactly as I'm living if you would be saved if you would enter the kingdom of heaven that's the truth that's the god who defines life and he gives the rules and he defines it the way that he wants to define it this one who he says i hold the universe together he provides an answer to the preacher's musings who knows whether the spirit of god the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the animal goes down he says i know i know let me tell you wide is the gate And easy is the path 
that leads to destruction. And many are going to find that. And narrow is the gate and hard is the path that leads to life. And only a few are going to find that. He obliterates with those words every human philosophical system. Every other system that says maybe there's another way. Maybe there's something else. Maybe if we just do this. Maybe if we just think this way. Maybe if we just act on these thoughts. He says, no. If there is a God, and if I am God, and if I get to define the universe as God, here's my definition. You must be perfect. Here's my law. The soul who does these things will live by them. Everything matters. Everything that we do, nothing is insignificant. So into this vaporous existence that we have, as we ask the question, what's the point? That's why we're doing this series. What's the point? He comes demanding perfection, eliminating the possibility. Now listen to this. It is not true that death is better than life. So for certain people who fulfill his law perfectly and receive that reward, there is an eternal reward for those who obey the law perfectly. Death will be better than life. But for everybody else, and that's everyone in this room, that is not true. That's a philosophy that I'm putting the lie to. Death, Solomon, you have no idea. You're saying better is the one who is never born. Better is the dead than the one that has to go through this existence. You have no idea yet what eternity holds. It holds torment. It holds eternal separation from God. It holds the cup of God's wrath that will be poured out on anyone who rejects the way. Better, you'll be longing for vapor on that day. You'll be asking the rocks to cover you on that day. It's bad news. And it gets worse. None of us make it. Paul, writing... A thousand years after, the preacher has done a further survey. He surveyed the Word. He surveyed the world. He was working as hard as he could to be that righteous one. And he comes to this conclusion in the the, the legal language of Romans 1, 2, and 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have become not just vapor, but worthless. Through the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That is the bad news. Not only does God exist, not only does he get to order his universe, not only has he said, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, but he also says, none of you will make it. Save one. And that was Jesus. That was this baby who came and he did. He lived a perfect life. He did everything that the laws of the universe that God had built, he fulfilled every bit of righteousness. He lived a perfect life. He earned the right. the, The Word of God says the soul who does these things will live by them. He earned the right to claim eternal life. And what he did with that is he said, I love you so much that I'll give it. I'll give my life as a ransom. I will become sin for you. I will drink the cup that represents God's wrath. I will allow myself to be separated from my Father so that you who believe in me, I am the way. I'm that hard path. I am the narrow gate. 
I'm the one through whom you have to come. There is no other. All these other systems, as wise as they may sound, and as much as they represent wonderful deep thinking, ultimately, they're a lie. Because there's one way, one truth, one life, and it's me. So that's the good news. The good news is that as we put our faith in Jesus through repentance, which means I'm turning away from everything else, every other pursuit, every other doorknob or every other idol that I could put my hope in, and I turn to Him and say, in you alone do I trust. That's faith. Turning away from repentance, turning to Jesus, I trust you. I believe that you are the way, not a way, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. We have through His Word and through His promises, and He gets to make the promises, and He gets to keep the promises because He's God. He does what He wants. It's not fair. Here's what's not fair. We're get, we get to go to heaven. Not fair. He took our sin. Not fair. It's an evil business that God has given. But He took the evil for us and gives us instead His grace and glory and paradise. We can be assured of these things. Unlike the preacher who kept walking and walking, we can look at the cross. We can read the writings of those. There were 500 people at one time who saw Jesus not just go into the grave, but prove that He was the Son of God by coming out. They were eyewitnesses of this. Some of them watched Him ascend into heaven. Some of them, at His bidding, have written these words down in the New Testament for us to hear and to read so that we can be assured this isn't just another pipe dream. This is not just another philosophy. This is truth. Hear the truth. And there are people all around us, including our own hearts, that need to hear the truth. So what do we do with this? We look back at our three points and we say, okay, if there's a better way to work, is there a best way to work? And the answer is yes. The better way is to, to not strive and do all these kinds of things and envy our neighbors and all of these things. As children of God, we get to do our work for the glory of God. We get to eat we get to drink and we get to do everything we do for the glory of God. So I love this picture of the hands because we don't have to fold our hands and be lazy. We know that wouldn't please God. He's already said that's foolishness. We don't have to come over here and strive all day long, every day long, ne never asking questions, never going back and saying, what's it all about? He's already done that. We don't have to live trying to find the perfect balance between rest and leisure. And Oh my goodness, I haven't, I've only had this much time watching TV this week, and I've worked this many hours. Next week, I'm going to try to reverse that. We don't have to live that way. We live by the Spirit, and the Spirit enables us to do all things with hands raised. All things to the glory of God. Our two hands are not meant to be folded, to be grasping things, even to be trying to figure it out on our own. We do everything that we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, whether we drive home, whether we're disciplining our children, no matter what it is, we do it all to the glory of God with hands raised. All of life is worship. Not just singing songs in here. Everything we do, that's the best way to work. He's got good works prepared for you to do. Your job is to find them. You go to the Word every day. You, you look at what He's doing around you. You live like Jesus. What's He doing now? What can I do? How can I join with Him? 
That's our task. We don't have to envy other people. We've got our tasks to do. We've got wonderful things to do. We don't have to live wondering if I, if I could only get that job. We can just live before the face of God, doing the things that He's called us to do. Secondly, we don't have to hold on to positions or leadership or be self-sufficient or try to climb some vaporous corporate ladder under the sun. We can trust the one who's marked out a path for us. We have a path already marked out. Our job is to find it. Our job is to watch for him and follow him and do, live like he lived. He said, I only do the things I see my father doing. That's what we're called to do. It means we have to know the Father. It means we need to be in His Word. We need to understand Him. We need to take the full revelation, not just the preachers, but the full revelation of God in the Scriptures. Get to know this one and live that way day in and day out. So go to the job fair. Ask the Lord, where am I supposed to be serving? Go to your community group leader. I just, I just had a conversation with one of the community group leaders. He was, they're just excited because they're saying, people in my group are leaning in. They're asking how they can help. They're, they're wanting to own the group with me. Suddenly, I feel like I'm not washing the dishes by myself after the meeting anymore. There's people who are taking ownership. Do that with your community group leader. And if you're not in a community group, two is better than one. Three is better than one. Get in a community group. We, want, we don't want a single person in this church to be experiencing loneliness. And that brings you to the third application. Live a life of fellowship. Live a life because you trusted in Jesus. You're no longer alone. You have fellowship with the Father. You have fellowship with His Son. And you have fellowship with a bunch of people in this room, in this church, who love you imperfectly, You love them imperfectly. We all want to grow in that. We want to make sure that that is an increasing characteristic of this church. That there's no one here who is saying the way that the oppressed were saying with their tears. I have no one to comfort me. Who is saying with the oppressor, I have no one to comfort me. Who is saying with this guy who just works and works and works and he's isolated himself and he's got no friends, no family, no one to pass his money on to and not asking good questions. We want nobody in that category. We want you to pursue the people who look lonely. and We want you to invite them to your community group. We want everybody in this church in a community group with fellowship, with people who know you and love you and are going to be with you when something happens and you fall and are going to enable you to stay warm spiritually when by yourself you would be cold. We want no one to be alone. So go to the job fair, look for ways to serve, be willing to serve in obscurity, recognize that Jesus said, here's a way you can lead, become the servant of all. There's a best way to live. We get to do it day in and day out in his church. And there is a lost world out there who are either asking the wrong questions or they're not asking questions at all. And we need to help them to ask questions. We need to be that salt and light and provocation, and they're sitting in the next cubicle to you at work, they're, they're, they're your next door neighbors, they're your relatives who live in a different city, there are new people moving into your neighborhood who are not asking questions, or they've got the wrong answers. And we need to be willing and loving, those of us who live both above the sun and have an anchor there for our soul and know where we're going, and we still live under the sun here with all of the pain and struggle of this, We need to show them that there's not just a better way to live, but a best way to live. That's our call. That's our temporary call. One day, it's going to be before His throne. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more evil. 
that we have to deal with. But for today, living with both hands raised, we live both above and below the sun. Let's go out there and do the job that we've been called to do, giving glory to God in everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we're not left just with the musings of this very wise, very amazing man and all the things that he learned as he observed. We can learn from his humility and asking questions and not being settled and we can continue to grow as he did. But Lord, you've given us something better. You've given us Jesus. You've given us the the fulfillment. You've given us an understanding that no, nothing is worthless. Nothing is just a mist. Everything matters. Every decision, every deed, everything we do gives has the opportunity to give glory to you. So we ask you to glorify yourself through us. We pray that we would be increasingly people who live the best life, the life that Jesus lived, a life of sacrifice, a life of, a life of laying our lives down, a life of being the servant of all, a life of bringing glory to you by completing the work that you've given us to do. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to do it together. We cry out, Lord, and ask that there would be no one No one in this church who says that they have no one. Pray for relationships. We pray for friendships. We pray for close communion. We pray that if anybody goes through a crisis, that they would always have those who they've built with, who are going to love them and relate to them. Lord, help us to be faithful to build that kind of a church. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could have any community group leaders who are here or others that we've asked to pray for folks, if you're here and you have never met Jesus Christ as the answer, we would love to pray for you. If you're here and you're just struggling and you feel like you're walking around and you just dug a deep hole for yourself and you just it's hard to see the light anymore, we would love to pray for you. And if you've got any other need, we would love to pray for you as well. So if I could get community group leaders up to come and pray. For those of you who are our guests, there's a welcome room right over here and some chocolate chip cookies for you and some folks who will be there to answer any questions that you may have about the church. Uh, please pray for Craig this week as he is at the, the Pastors College graduation tonight. And then he's got a Sovereign Grace board meeting through this week. They, there's very significant business that they're doing. So pre, please pray for those men. And also for Rob and Michelle and the team that's in Haiti, uh, we would like to just ask you to, to pray for them as they're gone for this week. And thank you for being such an attentive church, leaning in, asking the right questions. We love you guys. Have a great week. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.